Amen. There's going to be a couple things I want to lay out because I know we're going to finish up with the uh, two lads tonight. I know that. Uh, I am going to ask you up front because this is going to be the essence of the Q&A. What would be the moral grounds for the distinction between passion and patience? What would be the moral ground or the uh, right of analysis to conclude that one boy is behaving appropriately and another boy is not? Since we've already categorized them by name, as Bunyan has given us, one of the children's name is passion, the other one is patience. These are characteristics, obviously, that have to do with our personality traits and therefore how we interact and engage the world. Both passion and patience, I have already argued, which will be our third uh, uh, analysis tonight, really represent the inward struggle of the believer. Both passion and patience represents the inward struggle of the believer. So I'm going to remind you of how to make sure that when we deal with dichotomies, our contrast, our categories of distinction, bifurcations, that bifurcations in one sense will be distinct categories, but at, in another way, they will be overlapping reciprocative attributes that coexist in the same space. I'll make that argument here in a moment. But really what I want to ask is, why is it that passion is perceived by us and the narrative as being the troubled child and that patience is really being the noble child? Now, I'm going to give you a hint. So when we go into Q&A, you can have some, something behind this. It wouldn't make any sense at all for us to be belligerently argumentative and maybe negatively critical of passion if there's no backstory that constitutes the moral crisis of his behavior. There would be absolutely, in my opinion, there would be no reason for you and I to be up in arms by this young lad simply enjoying the abundance that was inadvertently poured into his lap. The narrative is demanding that we understand that that's what happens. If you read the account, you guys know, and one just came and poured into Passion's lap all of these gifts. One just came and you don't have a story of passion signing some kind of nefarious contract and giving his soul away like in the music industry. No, just somebody came along and poured gifts out to him. And that became uh, a conversation in, between interpreter and, um, and, and Christian around uh, the attitude, temperament, and characteristic of passion. And then we see patience enduring passion's uh, frivolity and, uh, and superfluity. That's an old King James term for just excess in enjoying his material goods, to, even to the point that you and I recognize that um, passion, because he was endowed with all of these goods, felt like he could have an attitude against his brother, didn't he? But what would justify that? What would justify that for being a crime? What would justify that for being wrong? What argument would you have that it would be wrong for him to enjoy his goods and, and maybe even mock at his little brother whose choice was to wait for later? 
You guys understand what I'm getting at? You, you and I need to know the backstory to behavior and conduct in order to know if we have a legitimate claim of, of, of uh, assessing that there's something wrong here. There may, obviously, there's something different, but does it constitute wrong? Difference is not always wrong. I'm nudging you, I'm nudging you. The backdrop tells you what the context is that argues for the moral or immoral or right or wrong or good or evil of the behavior one toward the other. Your backdrop tells you that. Your backdrop tells you that. And your backdrop is what tells you and me, you and I, how to understand behavior in the world. Your backdrop tells you what's right and what's wrong. Not just your arbitrary thinking, not your arbitrary judgment. Your arbitrary judgment in mind, if everything was rooted in arbitrary judgment, every man is a law to himself. And if every man is a law to himself, no one's right and no one's wrong. Are you hearing me? I'm messing with you because it's Friday and I got you till at least nine o'clock. And I want you to be able to think deeper and broader about something that might appear to be simple. But I got a feeling that we could easily, um, in its simple narrative, miss a lot of extremely beautiful, important, redemptive realities. Particularly in the beauty of the narrative being about two boys. And one boy getting all his Christmas gifts now and the other boy getting his later. What's so tragic about that? See what I'm getting at? But if you have a backstory, then we understand the implication. Plus, if you read the account, then you and I know that um, interpreter talks to Christian about how Christian sees this as a problem as well. So be ready for that. Hopefully we'll get into a little bit of our uh, newer outline. If not, we'll pick it up, um, pick it up on Tuesday. Um, as we're dealing with the dusty parlor of law and grace in your outline, that really should have been frame number uh, two, as I told you. And what we're dealing with now is frame number three. And I, I, I definitely have a reason for which I think uh, Pilgrim, not Pilgrim, but Bunyan, gave us frame one and frame two as a preface for frame three, and we might get a, get a, chance, get a chance to touch on it tonight, because I think it is a necessary prerequisite to the event that's going on in the two lads. In my opinion, the two lads is dealing with our sanctification at the experiential level and at the level of impact and outcomes. I think the two lads are dealing with what the believer has to work through in this world with a reality that we are one way and promised another way for which that other way we are promised we are not quite there yet. And the two boys help us with that analysis. But there is a predication that even puts us in that place of what is called in your third point, the inward struggle of both. There's something that precedes that, and it would be considered the mechanisms or the instrumentality of the proper proclamation of the gospel that exposes us to our inward struggle, if that makes any sense. And that's what we want to deal with uh, on Tuesday. That's your outline, the dusty parlor of law and grace, an application of the gospel upon the what? The heart. So we're going to talk about that on Tuesday if we don't get into it a little bit. So my question was raised um, 
What's going on here with these two boys? Why would we see one as bad and the other as good? Well, there's a few reasons that become obvious uh, on a theological level, and it's seen in the verse in front of us, Ecclesiastes 7, 8. Listen to what it says. This is what we call a pros or a proposition in the uh, proverb. This is Ecclesiastes, thank you. Better is the end of a thing than the beginning thereof. Do you guys see that? Now, that's an axiom. That's a proverbial axiom, and it works most of the time. And in Scripture, it has a strong eschatological argument, a strong eschatological argument. Okay, you're in class, so you guys should know by now what eschaton means. What is proton? First things. Like a proton, electron, neutron, protons are first things. Eschaton are therefore what? Last things. Eschatology is end time study. Eschaton is literally a Greek term that refers to the end of one's life. It's the term that's used in the Gospels when Jesus is dealing with people whose children are said to have died. They have come to their eschaton. All of us are going to come to our what? eschaton. If, if the Lord doesn't come back, we are going to enter into our eschaton, the final state in a certain way. So what's important about the verse here, and I think if you guys have been keeping up with me in the study, you can see this as serving as a kind of adumbration or over argument, or overarching argument for the account before us with passion and patience, right? Passion He is concerned with things what? Now. Patience is concerned with things what? Later. Passion is all about proton or protos. Patience is about what? Eschaton. Right. Very much so. Y'all got that, right? That makes some sense right now, right? Peculiar isn't that. A child would be given to now things. That would make sense. But another child given to later things, that's fairly um, oxymoronic. Wouldn't you agree? And yet, is that, is that really possible? Can a child have a kind of perspective that says, I'd rather wait than, uh, than engage now? Can a child have that perspective? Yes, of course. Yes, of course. And so what I want us to look at is how this proverb unfolds. Better is the end of a thing than the beginning thereof. And here it is. The patient in spirit is what? Better than the proud in spirit. Do you see it? So we would take that axiom and realize that this principle, this, this, this principle, this too would be what we would call a kind of dichotomy of analysis, The proud in the scripture is consistently the person that God has to resist. The proud is the person in scripture that God has to consistently uh, resist. The patient in the scripture is almost always viewed as the individual with whom God does not have to stand as an adversary. The patient is always the person with whom God does not have to stand as an adversary. And I'm going to run you through a number of scriptures so that your mind can settle into the word of God around this so that I don't feel like you're just taking my word for this. And I hope you're not, because if you know your Bible well, when I talked about God resists the proud, 
you know that's true. Old Testament, New Testament, Proverbs, the book of James, Peter says it as well. But he gives what? Grace to the what? Humble. So the humble individual is going to be an individual who possesses the characteristic of patience. Would you agree? Right. Because as was inferred a moment ago, he has been trained to. So remember, we talked about the boys being a kind of catechism for you and me, that you and I are not grown in the ultimate eschatological sense. As believers, we're still children. You guys remember that conversation? We're not grown yet. We are entering into maturity. We're coming to fullness, but we have not reached the full statute of the status of the son of God. We are on our way. And I share with you the Greek terms around that so you can look them up. Um, but we can we can kind of walk into that for a moment. First Peter chapter two, verse one. Keep up with me, sis. Listen to this, because this describes you and me if we have crossed from darkness to light. Notice what the text says in first Peter chapter two, verse one. <clears throat> Um, you guys will know it, desire the sincere, wherefore laying aside all malice and guile and hypocrisy and evil speaking very much. That's the imperative. Verse two, notice what it says, as newborn what? As newborn babe. So here's what Peter says to you and me. Think through the imperative in verse one by understanding the analogy of the child that is brand newborn. And that's called the newborn babe is the Greek term nepios, which means the child coming out of the womb has no interest in anything other than eating. And the virtue of that attribute is hungering for the things of God. That makes sense, right? Because as a child, he's now designated to a process of growth for which he cannot grow if he does not what? He cannot grow if he does not what? See, I know your bodies are here, but I can tell your minds are not. And they should be. Because these are simple concepts. You can't grow if you don't eat. That's spiritual, is it not? Blessed are they that what? Hunger and thirst after righteousness. For verily they shall be fed. And when a man or a woman has the presence of the gift of hunger, it indicates them still desiring to grow. I'm getting ready to talk about that a little bit more. But going back to our, our previous verse, no, don't go back. Let me see if I can build on that. That's nepios. So um, when we uh, deal with the next stage of growth, this is called pideon. Pideon has to do with moving from being a little bitty baby to now being in the educational mode of two to 13 or 14 years old two to 13 or 14 years old. What are you doing with them at that point? You're talking to them. You're setting up relationship parameters. You're giving them a lot of imperatives, yes and no, are you not? And you're expecting them to interact with you at that level. Hebrews chapter 11, uh, Hebrews chapter 12, I'm sorry, around verse five or six. I'm just gonna lift this up. This is just coming off the top of my head. You can check me out if you want to, but this is the logic of it. Here it is. And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks unto you as unto what? There it is. Even sons, pideons. Despise not thou the chastening. And that's a derivative of the same word child. Because he is a pideon. He is a pedo. He is a child young enough to be taught right and wrong, good and bad, good and evil, limitations and boundaries, right? Rewards and consequences. 
You need that early on. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when you are rebuked of him. Verse 6. I want to walk this through to its reward. For whom the Lord loved, he what? So there's no such thing as being in the Lord and not being given to the paradigm or the what we call the discipline of chastening. No such thing as being in the Lord and not going through the necessary chastisement for growth. It's not possible. You can't be in the Lord. In fact, that text would warn you that if you're not being chastened, you're a bastard. That's that chapter. It's telling you you're without a father. But this also admonishes fathers, does it not? Because ipso facto, a father should be a disciplinarian. And when that's absent, the child is going to grow up wild and fail to actually mature in the proper way. So for whom the Lord loves, he chastens, scourges every son whom he receives. Beautiful, isn't it? Verse 7. Notice what it says. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as sons. For what son is he whom the father does not chasten? The Hebrew writer is coming from Proverbs and he's being reiterative about it. But if you be without chastisement, whereof all are parts. <laughs> he's making a point, isn't he? In God's family, everybody grows up under discipline. There are no exceptions. Uh, he, and he's not a son. He's a bastard. Verse 9 I want to see if I walk through the culmination. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which have corrected us and we gave them reverence. The outcome of correction should be reverence. That's, that's what we're dealing with with patience. Patience is engaging in the, the framework or substratum of a characteristic called reverence. I'm making an argument for the backdrop. The backdrop of their choices is rooted in them knowing something about uh, why it's right or why it's wrong. Okay, so I want to make sure I remi- remind us of this. Patience is operating out of a what? Reverence. Okay, it's very important for us to remember that, and uh, I'll, I'll share that in a moment. I definitely want to get into our other part here because I want to talk about it. Uh, Shall not we rather than be in subjection unto the Father of spirits? And what? This is wild. Do you see what I see? Here's what it's arguing. That if we are not in this process of uh, catechism, of education, of correction, chastisement, then somehow we have shirked that relationship uh, and we have abandoned the reverence that is needed for that relationship to stay in place. And we are in danger of being proven to not be in subjection to God. And we are in danger, therefore, of not living You guys see the implications of that, right? Very good. Very good. I want you to keep that in mind because it makes all the sense to me in the world. Tell me to come back to this verse when I'm done, okay? And I'm going to tell you why you and I must understand this as a complete composite of what it means to have eternal life. All right. So now what I want to do is deal with the concept of patience and share with you how prolific this concept of patience is in the New Testament. Uh, the first verse that I want you to see it in is in Luke eight 15. I'm going to run through about seven verses just for you and I to own the quality. I'm going to define it and then we're going to move on to a few of the uh, very clear um, principles of struggle in, in, in our outline because you'll know them. If you've been a child of God for one week in Jesus, you ought to know struggle. Okay. Uh, Luke 8, 15 says this, but that which fell on the good ground are they which in an honest and a good what? Honest and good heart 
having heard the word, they keep it and it brings forth fruit with patience. That's a very important understanding. Those who first heard the word is hearing. This, the hearing part is getting ready to come back up under the reverence issue, right? That's critical in a relationship between a father and a son, is it not? The hearing, right? So they that on the good ground, <clears throat> which in an honest and good heart, and one can take those adjectives and really wrestle with them if you want to, or you can ask me to help explain them when we go into Q&A. Don't misinterpret them. Whatever you do, don't misinterpret them. Because if you do, you're going to set yourself up for unnecessary pain, okay? Uh, I've always said this at Grace. I'm still waiting for somebody to think they can correct me on it. An honest person is not going to hell. Not going to hell. An honest person is not going to hell. I remember saying that many, many years ago, people look at me crazy. And I'm telling you, the the gift of honesty is really a gift. We're not honest by nature. Are children honest by nature? Nothing honest about children, right? We got to constantly pull out those old programs and put in new software because that software is They will tear up the house. They will take over the kingdom. They would subdue mama and daddy and just run the whole thing if we didn't constantly change the program card. But there's a point in the relationship where you discover that the relationship has worked out at a level in which the kids are now becoming honest with you. And you're loving that. That's the reward of the labor. Am I making some sense? As adults, as adult parents, we love when our kids are honest with us. Right. right, So the next verse I want to walk through, I'm going to walk through a few more, is Luke chapter 21, verse 19. Luke 21, 19. I want you to capture this one. In your what? In your what? In your patience. You do what? You keep. You own, you keep, you own, you retain. This is wild. Your soul, that's huge. Is that huge or what? Listen to what he said. The patient person retains their soul forever. You now, now, listen, Jesus is the one talking here, okay? So you can get mad at me all you want to. I'm just here to tell you, oh, whoa, I get what Pilgrim is saying. I get what he's saying. You can lose your soul. I get it. Do you get it? I, I, I get it. I get it. You can lose your soul. I don't want to do that. So I want to, I want to comprehend these promises. Notice what it goes on to say in Romans 2, 7. Romans 2, 7. I'm going to do about five more and, and you can get it. And uh, we can touch on any of these verses if you're struggling with it. To, to them who by what? Patient continuance in well-doing, seek for glory and honor and immortality. What? Eternal life. Verse 7 of our text is, uh, of, of our, our Romans text is what I'm going to unpack this Sunday, okay? Going to unpack this this Sunday. If you look at this verse, this is telling you about a person who understands outcomes and is living according to eschaton. They are not living according to proton. 
They believe that the end of a thing is better than the beginning, too. Do you see that? They are pursuing an end game that results in honor, glory, immortality, and eternal life. This really has to do with a platform by which, in the end, the king brings all of those who have won the race and put them on the stand before all the angels, before all the devils, before all the reprobates, before all those that rebel to run this race. Because this is a metaphor of running the race. This is the metaphor of running the race. This is the metaphor that Paul was talking about when he says, henceforth is laid up for me a crown. Right? So this is called honor day, glory day, reward day. This is strange to you and I because as Americans, we really don't have deep investment in the metaphor of the Olympic Games like Paul did in that first century in the Roman Empire. But all the analogy of running a race are fighting a fight with the end game of that are wrestling, fighting, wrestling, running races have at their end the reward and honor of being on the platform and having the Stephanus crown placed on the head. Isn't this what we love about the Olympic Games? This is what I love about swimming in the Olympic Games. I'm not spending any money going to watch anybody swim, but I'm going to sit up till two or three in the morning and watch the Olympic Games while they swim and do all these backflips and take five minutes to do, you know, 500 meters or whatever the case. Is that not exciting? And we're looking for the person that touches the button one, you know, tenth of a second before the other person. And we're shouting with them. Why are we not? Right. Very good. All right. I'll leave that alone. This is me. I'll stay up at night and watch it. I'll be tired the next day. (laughs) Chapter five, verse three, Romans five, three. Here's another one. Romans five, three. And not only so, not only so, but we glory in what? We glory in tribulation. This is wild. This is paradoxical because we have to ask ourselves, why would we glory in tribulation? Well, if I'm patient, I might. Because if I'm patient, I have a principle called the eschaton, knowing that I'm looking for an outcome. And I will glory in tribulation. I will glory in tribulation. Didn't the apostles learn how to do that in the book of Acts? They sure did. All right, here's another one. Here's another one. Uh, Romans chapter 5, 4. Here it is. There's one more verse. Uh, right, one verse over. And patience leads to what? Experience. And experience leads to what? That's why we glory in tribulation. Because tribulation will make you a better person when you come out on the other side of it. You are always better after a trial. You are always better after a trial. The trial breaks you down, tears you apart, scrubs you inside out. That's going to be the, the parlor study. Ain't no doubt about it. But when you're done with the trial, you have learned something. You, you go, whoa, I didn't know that about God. I didn't know that about that. I didn't know that about me. Now I do. Yeah. Right? Now I can make what we call, long time ago, course correction. Thank you, Lord. Now I know what to do and what not to do. It's really a good thing when it's over with. When it's over with. Okay, not in the middle of it. When it's over with. Romans chapter 8, verse 25. Here's another one. Romans 8, 25. I'm going to walk through a few before we go into the analysis of the internal conflict. But if we hope for that which we see not, then do we with what? 
Patience, wait for it. Same principle, isn't it? And I'll mark this now. A patient person operates out of hope. A patient person operates out of hope. Hope is the other side of the coin called faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is and is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him, right? Faith is the substance of things hoped for. Right, so when you meet somebody operating out of patience, hupomono, hupomone in the Greek, this is the term, I might as well define it for you now while we are here, hupomone. And most people uh, in the Greek culture would see this term, this is probably a good one, see this term in relationship to, um, in, in, in terms of an athlete, this one here, um, in terms of an athlete, athlete, but we can see this in two different ways. Hupo is a proposition which means under. I've talked about this. Mone is a noun or a verb that means to remain, to remain. The idea of patience is to remain under, to remain under, to remain under. Did that make some sense? to remain under. It's important to get because the word patience evades some of us because we don't see it in its active form. We look at patience as a passive concept. It's not. Literally, it's enduring a set of pressures that are employed for a purpose. Okay, so the idea of hupomeno or hupomone, two ways to uh, communicate that in the Greek, is the idea of bearing up under struggle and not going anywhere. Just enduring that struggle. Just enduring that struggle. And so it's very good that you and I get it. Uh, And some of your translations, the word is endurance and not merely patience. Did that make some sense? Endurance. Another way this word is translated is one of the uh, meta principles in our Pilgrim Progress narrative, and that is perseverance. Hupomeno, hupomone, means to persevere. Now, we can use this in all three athletic metaphors. When you're running, you are obligated to stay on the course. You remain under rules. You don't get to run any way you want to. You remain under rules and you have to actually progress on that course. That's a kind of discipline, is it not? That's a kind of restraint, is it not? That's a kind of patience, is it not? Same thing when you're wrestling. As wrestlers, you have to endure opposition because that person is trying to pin you and you're trying to stop them. And then and on top of that, you want to pin them too. So wrestling is a major metaphor for not giving up, not giving up. Okay. Same thing with fighting. You don't give up. So all three of those are pictures of the life of the believer. Are they not? Sure. Uh, here's another verse I want us to see. Romans 15, 4. Now this is going to tie over into next week's study. If we don't get there with the parlor of law and grace. Notice what Romans 15, 4 says. For whatsoever things that were written before time were written for our learning, 
there's Pideon again, as a child, we're learning, that we through what? There it is. And what? Of the what? Might have what? You see how all all those passages tie together? And can you see now that they tie together with chapter 15, verse 4 at the mechanistic level? So I'm going to just kind of give you a key. When we deal with the parlor of law and grace, what we're dealing with are the mechanisms or instruments necessary for us to become the kind of person that has the ability to be patient. Once we deal with the parlor of law and grace, we're going to be dealing with how the minister, the good minister, applies the gospel in its teaching and in its exhortation in the life of the people of God so that they grow in patience, so that they grow in the comfort of the scriptures, so that they might have what? Oh, isn't that what the word of God's designed to do? In a certain way, the word of God is a medium between the communicator and the auditor, between the teacher and the disciple, between our heavenly father and us. The word of God is really kind of like the judge or referee to help us be encouraged to hang in there. Because all the word of God is is a set of propositions. It really is. You and I are going through the real experience in real time. The word of God is just simply saying, remember what daddy said. Remember what daddy said. Remember what daddy said. That's right. Remember what daddy said. That's what the scriptures are designed to do. So we'll look at that when we get into the parlor next week. A couple more, if you don't mind. Romans 15, 5. Romans 15, 5, if that'll come up. Now the God of what? Now the God of what? Now the God of patience. If I was on that side and y'all were teaching me, I would be shouting and hollering right now. I'd be shouting and hollering right now because if I can be identified as a child that is patient, then I know that my God gave me that grace. Right? I know that my God gave me that grace. That, that if, I, if God is a God of patience and I'm a child of patience, then I'm reflecting the grace that he poured into me to be like him. All right, so, we, so we come in, we're going to come back to Hebrews chapter 12. All right, let me do a few more because I think this is helping us. I like this. Now, this part is an old method of Bible teaching called word studies. This is an old style of Bible teaching called word studies. There are different modes of Bible teaching. This one is called word studies. It's a study of the lexical meaning of words. Like you have a lexicon. You have interlinears, you have dictionaries, you have thesauruses, you have atlases, you have all kind of lexical tools for how words have their origin, etymologically, how words are uh, developed or used syntactically, how words mean one thing in one context, another thing in another context is what we call the lexical meaning of words. And you and I, as children of God, we are called to be people that are acquainted with and flexible around learning words, sentences, phrases, ideas, theories, long paragraphs, propositions, syllogisms, complete arguments, narratives, then genres of language. Am I making some sense to you guys? So you and I are called to be people of the word in that regard. We don't want to be lazy because daddy's talking to us. And if you, if you and I were to keep the metaphor of the father and the child, 
you know, when we're first saved, you know, mom and daddy are talking to us in goo goo language. <laughs> really true. This is what we call in theology lipsing. I've told you this before. God lists, lisps. He comes down and he talks to us in goo language. And we love it because we're operating really in what we call face to face. That's position one. And we're really enjoying him more than understanding him. Right? We're enjoying him more than understanding him. After a while, the understanding comes. But he follows us into the developmental processes of articulation. And as soon as I go, da-da, you know, we have a fight in my house. We haven't had one in 22 years. 24 years. Trent just turned 24, I think. Um, But she was the last one we had to fight over. Because every time the kids come, I go, I bet you, the first word that comes out of their mouth is da-da. And I do everything to make it so. And we have received the spirit of adoption by which we cry, Abba, Father. Right? I'm not, I'm not making my wife irrelevant to the process. Please understand that. She plays a significant role. Uh, <laughs> significant role. I've lost that battle, by the way, sometimes. I had too many kids. So I lost that battle sometimes few more words. I love this one. James chapter 5, 11. We're doing what is called a word study because when you do a word study, you're kind of focusing on one concept. That's very good to do sometime. Focusing on one concept is very good to do sometime. Also, if you have somebody that can kind of take you through the scriptures in a jettison fashion, I didn't do a ton of it in the Old Testament. I could have. It would have been under the term patience and endurance as well. But the New Testament tells us that all the saints operated out of the principle of patience. Not one of them did not. All the saints had to be patient. They all had to be patient. Behold, we count them happy, which what? We we count them happy, which what? That's our word. That's our word. We count them blessed that endure. Now, what do you mean we count? We, We read their story. We see their struggle. We see that the end is better than the beginning. Is that not true for Job? We're happy with Job, aren't we? Now, if Job didn't finish well, I would have been going, what in the world was all that? But see, better is the end of a thing than the beginning thereof. The end brings clarity and reason to the whole process. Yeah, very important. But we count them happy, which endure. You have heard of the, there it is again, patience of Job and have seen the what? The what? The eschaton. That's the eschaton. And notice what he's saying there. If you want to just get some nuances around eschatology, which I've already taught you, the coming of the Lord is not just one singular thing like his bodily return. That is final and definitive, and it has not yet ever happened. The Lord has never come back bodily for his people. Does that make sense? But he comes back all the time by his spirit, in providence, through his people, in the preaching of the word, by his rescuing methodologies to deliver us out of this trouble, out of that trouble, and beyond. And we know it's the Lord, and we go, thank you, Lord, when he shows up and does that in our life. Is that true? In, In fact, I can tell you, I love this point that we're considering. 
I love this point. You, you, if you've never read the book of Job, you got to read it because it'll help you get through your troubles. Like you have to read it because what Job learned was that he thought he really knew God and didn't know God a lot at all. But by the time he was done with his troubles, he says, now I know. I've heard of you with the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes have seen you. And I put my face in the dust, happy that you showed up, happy that you didn't let me go, happy that you didn't pay no attention to my fussing and acting crazy and talking stupid and being dumb because I was in so much pain that I wanted to blame you for it. But you're a God that don't change. You don't fail. You don't lie. You showed up at the end like you did at the beginning. And as we're about to learn, I'm better now than I was then. And it would be no way to assize that until we got to the end of the story. You and I would have called Job a miserable man and we wouldn't have wanted to do anything with his life. But that would mean that we were more passionate than we would have been patient. So I'm kind of leading you there. This is extremely important to understand these points. So I love this. I'm going to do one more and then we're going to move on. Second uh, Peter chapter one, verse six. This is going to go from one, six through 10. And this is about developing your faith. And I might start at verse five. Let me start at verse five. I'm going to walk this through. This is about developing our faith. In this context, our faith is our life. Okay. I mean, you, that makes sense. Faith is more than a sentia. There's a Latin term that means I agree with God. Faith is more than just agreeing with God. Don't ever fall prey to saying, I believe well, I agree with God. I don't have an argument. with No, 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 no. Biblical faith is more than agreeing with God. The devils agree with God. They're still devils. Did that make some sense? Yeah, I mean, you don't have all kinds of people say they agree with God. Okay, when God says get up and go left, they, they have an argument about it. Well, you don't agree with God. You agree in your own delusional notion that you agree. There's this kind of figment of people's imagination that I'm all right with the big man upstairs. No, you're not. Because when he sends you a notice to do something, you argue with him. Am I making some sense? Right. And besides this, giving all diligence, here's what he's saying. Now, I want you to view faith as a central characteristic tree. A central characteristic tree. Two things I'm doing here. I'm giving you the metaphor of who you are at the core of your redemptive identity. I'm giving you the metaphor of who you are at the core of your redemptive uh, redemptive identity. You and I are people of faith at the core of our redemptive identity. You keeping up with me? Like every one of us are children of faith. That's at the core of our redemptive identity. But now this tree has to bear fruit. Am I making some sense? Right. So now here is what the Apostle Paul, Peter, says should be emerging over time as a consequence of us remaining under, remaining under, hupomona. If we remain under, faith will produce these characteristics. I know it's true. Here it is. And beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith. The word add there is the Greek term for supplement. Supplement, like we supplement our diet. Like we have a main diet and then we supplement it. So what, what Peter is saying to you and I, we need to supplement our faith. You're going around telling people you're a child of God, 
supplement that thing. Find what are those necessary nutritional mechanisms that can cause your faith to be uh, buoyant, to be vital, to be strong, and start to branch out and develop these kind of characteristics that are in addition to your faith. And here is what they would be. Add to your faith what? Virtue. Virtue. Add to your faith virtue. When somebody meets you, I'm just going to do it because it's probably good to do here. When somebody meets you as a believer, um, they, if, they, if, they, if they hang out with you long enough, they should know more about you than just that you are a believer. If they hang out with you long enough, they should be able to spot accompanying characteristics and attributes that are coextensive to you being a believer. Did that make some sense? All right, so stay with me now. This is really important. This is really important. If I hang out with you for one year and somebody say, Jess, do you know that brother? Yeah. Well, tell me something about it. He's a believer, man. Tell me something else. I don't know nothing else. He's just a believer, man. He's a believer. Tell me something else. Well, I don't know nothing else. All I know is he say he believes. See what I'm getting at? I don't know that person because there's nothing to know. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So faith itself at the propositional level is simply a claim. If the fruit doesn't manifest as coextensive to faith, I don't know you. You're not. This is why James said, show me your faith and I'll show you my works by my faith. You can tell me you're a believer all you want, but if your faith doesn't produce accompanying characteristics that constitutes the core of who you are, because listen, listen, faith and believing are two sides of the same coin. Faith is a noun, believing is a verb. If you are a person of faith, then you are functioning as a believer. And what that means is you're doing what daddy tells you to do. And what's going to happen in the reciprocal relationship between you and daddy is there's going to be characteristics. If there is no other character, you know, I'm going there. If there's no other characteristic than the word, what? Uh, He says he's a believer. The one thing I know about that sister and brother, they are patient. See what I'm getting at? So now listen to what he says. Giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue. Now virtue there is the term that means consistent in your character in a way in which people can trust you when you say you are a believer. Okay, consistent in your character in a way in which people, when, when people hear you say you're a believer, they'll go, I actually believe that because he's a person of virtue. And again, I don't, wanna, I don't want you to look at virtue in the puritanical sense. I want you to look at virtue in the power sense, because that's the way it's used in the Gospels. When Jesus went about loving on people, people tried to touch the hem of his garment because what would come out of it? Virtue. Power. 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 And what? God help us to be this way. Every attribute of the fruit of the Spirit, which should be coextensive to our faith, is really a demonstration of power. It's power of character. Would you agree with that? And if it's power of character, might it not also be power of witness to God? Might it not also be power of influence to others? Yeah, that makes sense. 
Yep, it makes sense. Beside this, add to your faith virtue and to your virtue what? Which is what we're doing in our class. This is what we do. This is why we do this. We do not do this to be ignorant faith people. He's a believer, but as ignorant as a dodo bird. This is ignorant as a cockadoodle. He's as ignorant as a slug. Give me all the metaphors, all of them. Just as ignorant as, you know, anything. That would be oxymoronic because faith hungers for righteousness. Does that make sense? All right. So add to your faith virtue and to your virtue knowledge. So we've got, we've got two coextensive branches with characteristics already. Those branches are coming out of the center of the tree of our dominant characteristic or identity, right? Here we go again. Uh, can we move the verse? And to your knowledge, what? Temperance. temperance, beautiful quality. Temperance and patience are two sides of the same coin. Temperance and patience are two sides of the same coin. Yes, they are. What a, and, and that's why P- Peter is going to tie it together with patience. And to your temperance, what? Patience. Now, if, if I were to, and I'm just going to do it because we've got a beautiful, intimate class tonight, I'll just stop and talk about the nuance between patience and temperance. If I am graced to remain under whatever kind of regiment of character development God is putting me, and I am becoming stronger under that regiment, it's going to actually give to me the capacity to exercise the quality of temperance in situations that come up. Now, temperance is the ability to control yourself in an event that comes up so that you don't act unseemly. Temperance is the ability to control yourself in an event that comes up so that you don't act unseemly, so that you don't give yourself to passion. Does that make some sense? Right. That is an extremely important characteristic in terms of glorifying God, because this is what Paul talked about in the book of Philippians. He says, when you and I are operating out of temperance, the other word is the same word, moderation, moderation. A moderator is somebody that controls the dialogue. When you and I are operating out of moderation, we are demonstrating the capacity to control the situation insofar as we're concerned. You can't control everybody else, but you can control what's in the sphere of your control. Does that make some sense? Right. And that's a beautiful characteristic to demonstrate because people that see that you have the ability to moderate your choices and actions, particularly in storms, they're going to be inclined to trust you. If too much pressure is on you and you collapse into passionate disarray, discombobulation, or wrong choice making, then they know where your limits are. And they know in that situation they can't trust you. Am I making some sense? Right. Having the capacity to moderate the situation is a function of having learned how to discipline yourself and operate from within that balance of having the ability to see the thing for what it is, know what limitations and what strength you have to actually impart into that situation in a way that the outcome is control, temperance and patience. And from patience, what? Right. And, and, and godliness, if you don't already know it, simply means acting like God. All right. Just acting like God. I'm not going to make this real hard. Acting like God. Now, 
If, if God becomes so wild and bizarre and so mystical and so mysterious and so opaque and so transcendent, then, then you're going to be acting like a fool and we ain't going to know who you are because you're acting like the God you're defining. If he's whimsical and flying all over the place, that's what Luther used to call people that had these kind of, I'm just following the spirit and they flighty all over the place. They just go flighty people. Okay, Following the spirit doesn't mean you just wash up on the shores of, of Nineveh, you know, just because you ain't got nothing else to do. That is not being led by the spirit. I'm going to help you now. So godliness is fundamentally your walk with God by which as you know him, you are demonstrating a kinship with him so that what matters to God matters to you. And therefore, other extenuating circumstances don't influence you as much. A godly person is just somebody that kicks it with God and y'all gonna know it. Does that make some sense? Like, you know, a godly person, this is beautiful about this quality. Because if this quality works right, it will cause people to want to know, you know, what is it that has you operating like this with this level of freedom and autonomy? with this level of clarity and definitiveness, with this sense of um, determination and purpose? Great questions. What is it that has you walking with this level of clarity and confidence, with this sense of definitiveness and purpose, with this sense of autonomy, autonomy of agency? What has you walking with this sense of autonomy and agency? What are you saying, Pastor? Most people don't walk with a high level of autonomy and agency. Most people are clones of some kind of existential circumstance. They're just imitators. It would make sense to me. I'm going to stop rambling here in a moment. It would make sense to me that if the person I'm hanging out with, with whom I have the greatest reverence is impeccable in his qualities and characteristics that some of that's going to rub off on me and grant me a sense of confidence because I'm walking with the best person I could possibly walk with in terms of being influenced because we're all going to be influenced by somebody am I making some sense all right good so uh he says add to your patience godliness verse 7 We have a few more. I think these are about nine attributes. And to your godliness, what? And to your godliness, what? And to your godliness, what? Which passion was not. He was not. Was he? He was selfish and nasty. Remember? He got all his goods and then he started to scorn his brother, which we talked about last night. I shared this Wednesday. I shared this with you. When you are scorning other people, it's merely an indication of your own insecurity. When you are scorning other people as a habit, as a pattern, it just means you are insecure. It just definitely means you ain't hanging out with Papa because Papa ain't scorning people. They don't, they don't intimidate him. If you're running with the biggest dog in the universe, you're not going to be intimidated. And you're not going to feel like you have to tear somebody else down to build yourself up. This is a good word study, isn't it? And to godliness, brotherly kindness, which I'm admonished, I'm admonished here to understand that if Papa is telling me to kick it with him, 
and to be like him, I'm obligated to love the family of God. Obligated. Like, I don't, you, I don't even care how weird you guys are. <laughs> I don't care how weird you are. Uh, I have to love you. Does that make sense? And you have to love me with all of my idiosyncratic peculiarities too. Right? Just, you know, we just have to put up, we have to put up with the mystery of who we are. All right, let me go into the other part. So brotherly kindness closes out with the capstone of what? Charity. Right. That's the essence of God's nature. Is that the essence of his nature? God is love. God is love. God is love. All right, let's go to our outline. Let me see if I can clip this quickly under point number three, because I definitely want to get into some dialogue. I'm just going to deal with these at the propositional level, point number three, and touch on them in a few verses. And then I want us to have a conversation around what I stated. What's the backdrop to this? So my argument is going to be that even though we can look at passion and patience as individual characteristics operating independently, qualities of which we can go either or. If we were stuck at the either or mode, like you have to either be passion or patience, we're going to all, if we're wise, going to want to be who? Right, and we're going to reject who? The problem is... Both of these brothers coexist inside of you. Now, what do I do with these mutually exclusive characteristics when they coexist inside of me? I have to learn how to manage them. I have to learn how to manage them. This is about management. This is about management. Um, So the first part of the management, as we talked about Wednesday, is Acknowledge the passion child. Acknowledge the passion child. You know how Christians will do in the church when they're operating out of hyper levels of insecurity? They'll pretend that they don't have a passion child. You meet some Christians who are operating out of a really good phenotypical expression of constraint and control. Constraint and control. When they come out in public, constrained, controlled, constrained, controlled. They remind me of politicians. The politician, when they come back from out from behind the curtain, they come to the podium and they're constrained and controlled. You notice that, right? You go so constrained and so controlled. Then when they go back behind the curtains, they're as crazy as a bed bug. We already know that. This is what I've been teaching you in Romans chapter one. This is what we're going to deal with this week because Paul's getting ready to uncover the hypocrisy of self-righteousness. And we know they are. So they're putting up a front when they come out and their words are measured, curated. Their temperament is controlled because they're getting a paycheck to be almost monotone. And the sad reality is that Christians who are in the business of manipulating people do the same thing. You have whole churches that engage in unauthentic character expression. You do. You just do. And, you know, if you ever go to those communities, it feels like being among a thousand Stepford wives. 
some of, some of our saints, and it was a Stepford Wise. I've never even seen that before in my life. I've never seen that ever in my life. Never seen the Stepford Wise. Now you got see. Now you got to go and watch it. It's another programming. It's another predictive programming. It's true. Got to be careful, but you got to go and watch it, okay? Because what you don't want is a Stepford wife. Nobody wants a Stepford wife. You got to have a wife that screams every now and then. You got to... <laughs> you got to have a wife that, you know, pushes back a little bit. Not a whole lot, but a little bit. You got to have a wife that's peculiar and a little bit weird. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, because they're smarter than you on so many intuitive levels anyway. They have to have a computer mechanism that has glitches in it. Do you understand how intimidating a woman would be? if she didn't have those glitches, right? Do you understand how intimidating that would be? Brothers wouldn't be able to handle women who didn't have glitches. The glitches remind us that they're human. Yeah. Because apart from the glitches, they'd be way out in front of a brother, right? Their computer runs so fast. You know, when you're a young brother, you try to keep up with the computer. Quit trying to keep up with the computer. You, you're, you're running the helm. You're, you're running the helm. I'm, I'm, I'm helping some brothers. You keep your hands on the helm. You keep your hands on the helm. Your job is to guide the ship. They can only run so far. After that, they're going to jump over and you done already told them sharks are out there. You keep your hands on the helm. This is how a brother get his ship safe to shore. I'm telling you right now. Let all the hootlums that you had, wife and children, run around on the ship. Brothers, don't let the helm go. You got a lot of block them out. When you when you walking with the Lord, your only job is to guide the ship. Your job ain't to manage all of the nuances on the ship. Your job is to make sure that ship gets to shore, husbands. You ain't running all the other stuff. Let them handle that. If they're stupid, they'll jump over. You can't do nothing about that. Nah, yeah, you can. You can lock it on lock mode. You can put the helm on lock mode and go and rescue them because that's your job. Go rescue them. You get them back on deck, don't say I told you so, because that's another argument. Just go right back to the hymn, control the hymn. Right. Right, it's very important to understand that. And I'm talking about acknowledging the passion child in you. Because the passion child in you is the reason why you and I are tempted. Right, of course, it's logical. I told you this Wednesday. Christ, being God, could not be tempted like we are. That's what I'm going to circle back to the end, why patience is such a beautiful attribute. They tried him, but they couldn't tempt him. I told you there's a difference between trying and temptation, didn't I? Jesus didn't go around leaning into his impulses like you and I do. No. No. He was impeccably controlled with the fruits of the spirits, even though they came after him. Am I making some sense? Please know this. He wasn't tempted. He had no sin 
nature that was leaning to rebellion against his daddy. If he had rebelled one time in his thought, he would have disqualified himself from being our substitute. Holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, knew no sin, did no sin, in him was no sin at all. He asked anyone to try to prove that he was a sinner. No one could do it. Even when he allowed himself to be our substitute on the cross, Pilate says, I find no fault with him. The only man on the planet that made access to glory for us because he never sinned, which means he never was tempted to sin because temptation of sin are internal impulses that are sinful by nature. Now, did that make some sense? You need to know that. You need to know that. You and I need to know that. We, we have a big brother who made it all the way through. He never took his hands off the helm. Ship full of crazy kinfolk. He kept us all the way to shore. Right. So pa- acknowledging the passion child is what 1 John chapter 6 through 9 says. I'm going to walk through this. Acknowledging the passion child. And this is where church gets in trouble too. Church will lie after they profess to be saved that they're no longer sinners. They will say, I'm, I'm a saint now. I don't, I'm not a sinner. Did that make some sense? That, I, I'm a saint now. I'm not a sinner. Oh, so now you're making a complete dichotomy out of those two qualities. You don't see them as both and. But here's what the Bible says. If we say that we have fellowship with him and we walk in darkness, we are what? We are lying and we do not practice the truth. Y'all got that? Yes. Now, the metaphor is walking in darkness. The metaphor walking in darkness is the idea of walking in ignorance. To walk in ignorance is to walk in darkness. But if we say we're walking with him, we should be walking in the light. And if we're walking in the light, that means we're walking in knowledge. And if we're walking in knowledge, then we're walking in what God says is the real matter. Because God knows the real matter. And if God tells me that I am a sinner still, then I go around walking in the darkness of saying, no, I'm not a sinner, I'm a saint then now I'm not walking in fellowship with God because the light tells me that I'm still a sinner. Does that make some sense? But I'm going around telling people I'm not a sinner, which I'm really indicating that I'm not fellowshipping with God because God only saves sinners. Did I help you right there? Notice the next verse. Notice the next verse. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and what? And what? The blood of Jesus Christ. Now, why do we need the blood if we're not sinners? See, the thing that keeps us in the presence is the blood. The thing that keeps us in fellowship with God is the blood. Paul is, uh, John is getting ready to actually take us deeper into sacerdotal practices. This is how you understand the Old Testament being explained by the new. You never come to God without a sacrifice. None of the Old Testament saints could come to God without a lamb, without a bullock, because they were what? They were sinners. And you got to bring the blood because without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. Now, the man or the woman that brought the lamb is agreeing with God that they are what by nature? Yeah. See, that's called walking in the light. When you and I profess the blood atoning work of Christ, we're walking in the light. We're saying, yes, we're saved. Yes, we're redeemed, but we're sinners still. And the blood of Christ is the thing we apply to when we are consciously aware of our disobedience and rebellion. Does that make some sense? 
Sure. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and fellowship with one another. I might as well go ahead on and do this caveat too because the blood is what keeps us in communion. Unless you want to forfeit forgiving your brother because you remember what Jesus said, if you don't forgive your brother, daddy not forgiving you. So now you're getting ready to get a long tail whooping because you think you can have fellowship with the father and yet not forgive your brother. Now you're getting ready to whip your tail. This might be a long tail whoop. It could be years. Did y'all hear what I just said? Daddy can whip you for a long time if you think you can hold a grudge against your brother or sister as if you are better than them. See, the best way to be super happy is to forgive all the brethren. Stage one, let them go. That's stage one. Alpha Amy, let them go. That's stage one. I taught some sisters that last night. Stage two, reconcile if you can. Did that make some sense? Stage two, reconcile if you can. But don't tell them to go to hell. Because that's not love. Now, you might have to have some space between letting it go and reconciliation. But don't lie to God about that. Because he really says, hurry up and fix that thing. Now, reconciliation requires mutual cooperation on both sides. And if the other party don't want to don't want to get come to the table yet. All right, I'm cool. I didn't let that thing go. I'm not trying to wrestle you to the table. I can't I can't establish the appointment. The appointment might only come five years from now, but I'm going to be ready for the appointment. Am I making some sense? And I'm hoping that we can reconcile so uh, we can reconcile so that we can restore our fellowship. Because prior to whatever stupid thing that divided us, we were cool. This goes across every relationship, child of God. Every relationship. You want to meet some really funky, struggling, uh, depressed Christians? Follow it. Almost inevitably, it's at the level of forgiveness. Do you hear me? Almost inevitably. All of us. With our mama, with our daddy, with our husband, with our wife, with our brother, our sister. All of us will try to play Mr. Self-Righteous Legalist, throw God off of his throne, then get up there and decree who lives and who dies. Now, we are, we are a million miles away from fellowship with the God of love. Are we not? He didn't just... He didn't just walk away and let you have, let, let everybody will figure him out. That's what the Lord is saying. Everybody will figure him out and, and, they'll, and they'll clear out like I'm clearing out. And that brother or sister will be hanging out all by themselves. Where, where y'all at? Where y'all at? Where y'all, where y'all at? Can't hang out with you. Not enough blood there. Not enough blood there. All right, let's keep going. Notice what he says. And the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, what do we do? That's what I meant by all these churches going around talking about not having sin. Are you crazy? And the truth is not in us. You don't read anywhere in the scriptures, with the exception of a few men, where saints didn't stumble and make mistakes. You don't read anywhere in the scriptures with the exception of a few people. And those few people, with the exception of the Lord, they sinned. It's just that God didn't show it to you. Joseph is one of them. That brother's life was impeccable. I know he sinned. 
Potiphar's wife coming after him every day. She was a beautiful Egyptian chick. God gave him grace to say no. But I know the struggle in that man's heart. Do you understand what I'm saying? Vital, red-blooded American. No, he was Jewish. But he was human. Right. And I know what he had to do to make sure that he didn't collapse into complicity with his impulse. He had to pray for patience. Am I making some sense? If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Verse nine. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Isn't that good? That's what he meant back in verse five. That's what he meant. If we say we have fellowship with him and walk in the light, then we're good. We're good. It's very important that that quality is is good. So what I did under sub point A of point number three, the inward struggle, is say acknowledge it. Acknowledge it. God knows how to fix this. Matthew 26, 41. I love this. Here's what Jesus said about you and me. Are you ready? He says, the spirit is willing. The flesh is weak. That's what he said. Watch and pray that you enter not into it. There it is. Temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is what? So this was my argument to you that you and I could never say that we're all patient and not some passion. Because passion is the evidence of the weakness of our fleshly nature that inclines us to temptations. Is that true? Sure. We could just expand that out. I'm not going to do it. I do want you to get this, though. When that tug comes to do the wrong thing, that's a sin nature doing that. Please understand that. And it's a mystery that Paul calls it in Romans 7. We're getting ready to go there. That when I would do good, evil is present. Well, how can I just how come I cannot just do good when it's time to do good? Because I'm in between passion and patience. Right now, that's not in every event. It's not in every event, but it's in enough. And there are seasons when it appears like almost every event is co-mixed with the pull of temptation versus obedience. We do have seasons when there's a prolonged period of just joyful obedience. And in the areas where there may be temptation, they are so diminished that they don't come up on the scale of conscious awareness. Did that make some sense? Like in, in the medical field, it's called noise. When you're looking for things that might be uh, uh, inconspicuous there as potential viral, bacterial or fungi. You need enough noise for you to go, there may be something here. And so in the same sense, when you and I are walking right in the light of the blessings of the gospel and we are just walking with God, we're in this mystery of in a good way with God. Please count that a a wonderful thing to get up in the morning and not be trapped by conscious guilt uh, because you have succumbed to levels of temptation that have consciously bound you to an awareness that you're not right with God. That's a real bad place to be. And when God releases you from that, and sometimes he just does it arbitrarily because you're saved, at other times he's wanting you to open your mouth and say, okay, dad, I'm messing up. Did you get what I just stated? A lot of times he just let us go, go ahead on, we good, go ahead on, we good. He'll let it accumulate. He'll let it accumulate fundamental internal disobediences. 
like little inclinations to go a certain way. They're not, they're not overt, maybe not even explicit, but he knows that they're not redemptive. He knows that they are not uh, purely spiritual. He knows that enough of that can get you in trouble. So he gives you time. Say amen, pastor. Right, because you know this is how he does with us. He just let us go for a while. We're still serving the Lord, hanging out with the saints, all that. And we these little, these, this little noise going on. Little noise going on. Uh, and, and I know. I'm way old now. I'm way old. Jess, I talk to myself. I ain't even worried about people thinking I'm crazy. Jess. Dude. All right, now. Go head on. Keep on up. Keep it up, Jess. Keep it up. You think you're slick, boy. Keep it up. Watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Subpoint B in your outline. The patient child, what? Preferred. The patient child is preferred. That's what Ecclesiastes 7, 8 was saying, but I'm going to just take the Luke 16, 25 text because we have a couple people that are great models of this. One is Lazarus. Lazarus was the beggar with sores all over his body, but he loved Jesus. You guys remember that? Lazarus was the beggar. Um, we did this on Wednesday, so I'm just going to pick it up here. Abraham said, son, and he's talking to the Pharisee. Son to the Pharisee. Because this here is a parable that Jesus is teaching to the Pharisees about their arrogant assumption that they're safe for glory just because they're Abraham's seed. And, as I'm going to talk about on Sunday in The Self-Righteous Jew, what Jesus was saying to them was, you had everything necessary to prove what it means to be a child of God, but you scorned Lazarus just like passion scorned patience. Y'all got that? In the same way that passion scorned patience, the rich man scorned Lazarus. Because God had providentially set Lazarus in front of the rich man's gated castle. So every day the rich man came out of his gated castle, he has to step over Lazarus to go to work. And he disregards Lazarus simply reaching out his hand saying, you know, can you give me a little something to eat? So every day he goes out, steps over Lazarus, and guess what he says? I thank God I'm not like Lazarus. Y'all got that? Right. Then if we were to read the text, guess what? Both of them die. That means they were equal. That means your money can't keep you from dying. That means in reality, your money was an illusion. The now principle was a fallacy. Because now means temporary. Later means permanent. Isn't that what Pilgrim was taught? All right. Notice what it says. But Abraham said, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things. Remember the picture of the man coming and dumping all those goods on passion? There it is right there. Dumping all his goods on passion. Dumping all his goods on passion. Y'all got that? And passion sucked it up, didn't he? Right. But Jesus said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world? And what? You can lose your soul. How stupid you are to think your soul is yours. Your soul is God's. And you can lose it if you believe in the now only and not the later also. And likewise, Lazarus says evil things, but now he's comforted and you're tormented. That's a bad outcome. 
That's a bad outcome. This was, this was uh, Jacob and Esau. Esau came out first. He had the birthright. He had the promise to all of daddy's blessings. But the brother loved food and he loved eating and he despised his birthright. Do you remember the time he came in hungry? I'm starving, man, I'm starving. And Jacob could cook. And he smelled the pottage. He said, man, I'll give you anything for that. And Jacob said, give me the birthright. He gave it up, didn't he? He gave it up. The Hebrew writer says he despised the gospel. The birthright is the gospel. Did y'all get that? The birthright is the gospel. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's the gospel, is it not? So the receipt of the gospel given to the sinner must never be given up. But many people walk away from that receipt for things now. I'm making some sense. Am I making some sense? Right. Right. And so that's subpoint B. Finally, subpoint C. I love this. The promise of what? Christ realized. Y'all got that? Right. Everything that I'm talking to you about in terms of the trials and the temptations came upon Christ. And every time they came upon Christ, guess what he said? Later. That's a 60s hood, hood lingo. Later, man. Later, later, man, he didn't operate out of the now. So in Matthew chapter four, as it states, the Holy Ghost drove him into the wilderness and the devil came with all of the bag of goods and dumped them in his lap, didn't he? And Jesus said, what? Later, man, later, later. Y'all got the analogy, didn't you? Because Jesus could see the end from the beginning. He knew better was the end of a thing than the beginning thereof. And the reason why you and I have eternal life is because we had a big brother who said, later. That's good, isn't it? That's good. He said, later. This is what secures us. So you and I may deal with the trials and the struggles and the challenges of the temptations now, but our eternity is paid for by Jesus and we're guaranteed to be with him even if he has to kill you. Pastor, that don't feel good. It's just true. First John chapter five, verse 12. I'm done here. We're going to open the mic. I need somebody to run so we can talk a little bit. Then listen to what John, John said. This is the brother that knew Jesus. This is the one that loved Jesus. Um, this is going to probably be about verse, I'm sorry, verse, start at verse 16. I love this. John 5 to 16. I think I'm going to be there. All right, if any man see his brother sin a sin, which is not unto death, he shall ask. What does that mean? He shall pray. And he shall give him life for them that sin not unto death. We pray to God for each other when we see people sinning a sin not to death. You can ask for that. Did that make some sense? I mean, this would take a little bit of a deeper analysis. I'm not going to do it here. I've already told you there are sins that you and I can commit for which God is not going to forgive us. He's going to take our life. Did y'all get what I just stated? You're going to heaven, but you're done here. And, 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 and the saints don't even need to pray for that. God, God, God's not going to give you the impulse to pray for somebody for whom he said, no, he's going home. That person going home. 
you might as well stop. He told Jeremiah, stop praying for him. They're going to Babylon. Why would Jeremiah spend all his time praying for him when God didn't already purchase their ticket to Babylon? They labored and earned a ticket to Babylon for 70 years for rebelling against God. 400 and something years rebelling against God. He gave them a 70 year excursion to Babylon. That was not going to be retrieved. They weren't going to be able to cash that ticket in. God told Jeremiah, boy, you might as well stop crying. They're going. Did y'all get that? So here's what the account is saying. If any man says, brother, sin, I sin unto death, he shall ask and God will give him life for them that sin not unto death, which is a beautiful inference because the inference is, is that we should be praying for one another, particularly when temptations are driving us to a place of sinning against God. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. You don't think you need that kind of fortification when you get in deep trouble? You don't think you need some saints who have the ability to discern when you're way out in the far country, when you had a country with by all means, when you got caught up with worldly wise men, when some of the hoodwinkers down the road of the pilgrim's journey got a hold of you and had you to veer off the road. Don't you think you need wise saints who already had conversations with them fools to pray for you to get you back on the right track? Yeah, you do. This is a good study, isn't it? Right. And think about this. Think about the economy of the kingdom of God in this regard. This is why the devil loves like a bad shepherd that he is to scatter the sheep. Because when the sheep are scattered, then we don't know what's going on with you. Am I making some sense? And you don't even know how to cry uh, enough for the saints to go. There go another sheep crying. And sometimes some of us are mature enough to hear you crying when you come, even though you're putting on the Mary Kay face, the smile. I can tell when you heard this, Lord, they way out in the far country, way out in the far country. They way out there, Lord. Send your sheepdog to get them. Right? Send your sheepdog. They pretending, I'm all right. No, you're not. You ain't even close to all right. You're far from the fold in your soul. And you you need mature, discerning saints to pick up on that. And Lord, give me a burden for them. Give me a burden for him. Right. There is a sin unto death. I do not say that he shall pray for it. See it? All right, let's have some conversation. Let's have some conversation. Anybody want to holler at me for a few minutes before I run us out of here? All right, go ahead on. You can start it, uh, AJ. You can start it. Any, raise your hand, ladies and gentlemen. Don't, don't be shy because we're going to be out of here in 10 minutes. You got some questions up there? What's that? Okay, yeah. Excellent. Thank you. Leave it up there. If you, whoever has the mic, y'all can start. I got a question, Pastor. Okay, AJ. Um, it's, it's about the, um, the honest person not going to hell. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so... Um, I had a question about it, and, and I guess I just need more clarity because um, I thought about that because you said it for years, and um, I was thinking I would try to frame it more contextually, like biblically, and so I just wanted to make sure I was doing it right. Yeah, um, let's see what it, you got. So in John chapter 9, verse 41, uh, after Jesus is kind of dealt with, the blind man gave him his sight back. And then meets him on the outside of the church. And then in the last verse, um, Jesus is talking to the blind man. And the Pharisees overhear him. And uh, 
they say, are we blind too? Also more like, uh, you know, not saying it because they believe. Yeah, sarcastically. And he says, um, if you were blind, then... Uh, you would have no sin. You would have no sin. But you say we see. Therefore, your sin remains. Therefore, your sin remains. Is, is the honesty about being honest before God or just in general about your sinfulness? Because a lot of people can say, yeah, I'm a sinner, but then they never necessarily. They're not being honest. Okay. That's, so, that's so, no, you got to drill down a little bit more. So you started this. I'm talking to AJ. He started this. You know how we do exegetically. I drill down. And he's doing the right thing. He's wanting to make sure that he can have a biblical example of an honesty that really is the consequence of being completely yada. Yada is the Hebrew term for open and acknowledging God. Yada, yada, yada. This is, this is Psalm 51, verse 6. This is Psalm 32, verse for this shall all the godly pray in the time when God may be found. I said, I will acknowledge my sins before the Lord. Against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. God requires truth in the inward part and in the hidden part, he'll reveal Jesus to me. An honest heart sees himself the way God sees him. Does that make some sense? Right. And so those are just two verses you can anchor. I could give you many more, but I ain't going to do your work for you. Um, and you were right there. But so it's never an issue of honesty if all I'm doing is trying to be honest among men, because the horizontal dilemma of just being seen before men is what Jesus condemns of the Pharisees in Matthew five and six. They do everything to be seen of men. And Jesus told his disciples, don't do anything the way they do it. They like to give in church and talk about how much they give. Well, the reward comes right there. Heaven has shut the bake on them. They get no return on that money because they were glorifying themselves. I gave a hundred dollars. Whoop de do. He gave a million dollars. Whoop de do. That's the Pharisee. Right. Um, and men, when they are honest only among men, are lying to God because their honesty is really about manipulation. Am I making some sense? Right. You're trying to influence. You're trying to position yourself. You're trying to get some accolade or, you know, often within the deep profundity of female perversion, um, when women are overly emotional and exhibitional in it, they are trying to get some accolades by their emotionalism. And, and smart sisters have to know how to cap that, too. Not be mean, because adding sin to sin is demonic, too. But how to cap the emotions when they are pretending to be honest, when really it is all it is is manipulation for the center of attention. It can be profoundly deceitful. Am I making some sense? It can be profoundly deceitful because it's pathological as well. Because see, if you, go, if you just go, oh, sister, I understand. Look to Jesus. Now they're ready to cuss you out. They weren't honest, were they? They weren't honest. So we need to understand how honesty is really about simply seeing ourselves in the truest light as God sees us. That makes sense, doesn't it? Right. I'm telling you, an honest person ain't going to hell 
God's going to actually bring that person into that kind of honesty and tell them and show them that the grounds of their confidence is not in them. It's in the master. It's in the master. Right. So this honesty is a cross-centered honesty. It's vertical and horizontal. At the horizontal level, it's careful. At the vertical level, it's yada. Yada is the Hebrew term to open your mouth wide and tell God everything you know about you and everything you know about him. People that praise the Lord operate out of yada. Yada means to acknowledge God in the fullness of who he is across all that you know about him. Right. Does that make some sense? So when you are operating out of yada, you're operating out of a liberty of not fearing what man can do to you. Because the Lord is your strength. He is your salvation. Whom shall I fear? That's called your die. That's, what, that's why David was such a bad, I'm telling you, David could run the hood with me because we would set up a church right in the middle of the hood. Just set the church right up right there and dare anybody to act a fool. David's on my side. You come in here clowning if you want to. Um, a beautiful thing, isn't it? All right. Hope that helped, AJ. Very much. Who else has the mic? Uh, a sister, Katrina, do you have a mic or are yes. you pretending? Okay, yes, go ahead on. No, I have a mic. So going to your topic um, that, about forgiveness and reconciliation. You got to keep the mouth clo- mic so, closed. Um, so we regarding forgiveness and reconciliation. So as you know, I struggle with my dad. And so since he's an ex-alcoholic and drag addict, he has the habit and the tendency of... You know, I get upset with him when, you know, he curses at me because he's upset over something and because, you know, he, he, he did get baptized. And so he is a well, Christian. What does that mean? What does him being baptized mean? It means well, nothing. That's, that's what he thinks. Mm-hmm. So, and he throws it at, at my face. Okay. And so when I tell him, you know, Dad, I understand you're hot and heated, but you need a, but of course, since he's a dad, I can't tell him anything. And so mm-hmm. that's when he turns it on, on me. Right. And so I can only, because I, I could get hot and heated too. Have so, you ever got hot and heated with that? Oh, yeah. Just once? Oh, more than once. Twice? We just had it this last weekend. Three times? <laughs> yes. Too many to count. Like too many more than I would like. Okay. So. Um, didn't, it feel, didn't it feel good? At the time? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. I'll tell you why. Go ahead on. Um, and so. The habit and the tendency is when we have Arguments. a blowout, mm-hmm. you know, whenever the next holiday is coming. So in this case, it'll be Father's Day. You know, yes, I, I have the tendency to be a giver and spoil him. Not that he deserves it, but, you know, whatever. And so when we get to a very heated, in our face type of heated argument, then the fact that I don't want to see him and the fact that he's not getting food and gifts and whatever, then I'm the evil, non-Christian, non-forgiving bee. Mm-hmm. And so, and this is, you know, a, a vicious cycle. Right. And so, you know, we've already had that discussion so many times. And so I don't want to. <laughs> uh, I, don't I don't know what else you. to say to let him understand because he thinks I'm just not a forgiving person. It's like, no, I just don't want to see you. Right. And I don't have to not want to see you. And I right. have that right because you're not changing. Right. And so all you do is provoke. At and the, the fact at that the moment you're he's not. How old is he? He's 70. Okay. Going to be 71. He can be 100 years old. I've, you know, one of the wildest <laughs> things 
is the craziest people live to be 90 and 95 and 100 years old. I'm I got like, 20 Lord, more years of this. Lord, why they live so long? <laughs> right? Have you ever noticed that? Like some of the craziest people live to be 150 years old. Okay. Come on, let's work. Are you, yeah, are you and let me add to that. So he's 71. He takes no medication. I'm a diabetic. Mm-hmm. And yet he was an alcoholic and a drug addict. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yet <laughs> I'm the one taking medication. Don't so equate those two. So anyways. No, don't, hold on. Don't equate those two. Okay. But. Because those two are two different things. Right. You're taking medication and him not are not equivalent. They're not reciprocal providences. Okay. Don't even make them that way. Okay. So. You know, I, I just don't know. And, you know, Latin family, you know, I get the pressure. Oh, like yeah. After, Latina families are worse You know, than you got to forgive your dad. It's like, I've forgiven him. The thing is, I don't want to deal with him. Right. I don't want to waste my time and my gas, That's go right. two hours to deal with this. Can you feel your if, sister? Because you if, your sister? If, if I go there with less than what I usually do, oh, you still haven't forgiven. After I just drove two hours to see you and bought you some stuff, mm-hmm. now because it ain't the 20 and now you're only getting eight, like you're still going to complain <laughs> that you only got the eight instead of the 20. Passion and, is, and I'm still Papa, the Papa, evil, unforgiving Papa person. Is passion. Papa is passion. Yeah, I don't want his passion. I don't want to deal with his I didn't passion. Ask you that. I, didn't tell you that. I didn't tell you that. All I'm saying is Papa's passion. And so, you know, my sister, which you know, you know, know. she's like, well, you got to forgive him. Like, it's been long enough. It's like, it's not about not forgiving him. It's just I don't want to see him. Okay, so you're you're building. So how do I make everybody in my world understand? Well, a couple. Is that the question you're asking me? Yes. I I have no idea how you're going to do that. Because I I feel like I've already had this conversation so many times. I can give you two or three insights if you want them. Yes. Okay. Everything. Okay. Yeah. Forget trying to make everybody understand. That's one. So that is also forgiving them at stage one. Forgiving at stage one, I've taught us this. People don't listen. Afi'imi means to release it. Release it. Afi'imi means to release. Because at present, you are tied to that social context at the psychological, emotional pragmatic level in a way in which it is kind of defeating you. When you're able to release it, you don't have to feel obligated to explain anything to them. That's a kind of forgiveness. Do you understand what I just stated? Right? Particularly if they really don't want to understand, let it go. That's what okay, so that's first thing. Yeah, right, right. Okay, so, so we're getting ready to move into a second couple of categories. Right, the reason why you haven't been able to learn how to let it go is because it's still valuable to who you are at the core of your identity. Right, so n- number two is in the area of me being so invested in that and in them that to release it, this is really part of the same study. I didn't have time to do it. I'll give you the I'll give you the syllogism. Suffering and loss when God is in it equals growth, gain and greatness. Suffering and loss 
when God is in it equals growth, gain, and greatness. The nature of the gospel is that you and I learn how to suffer. And suffering is always equivalent to loss, where we're losing things. We're losing things. This is what, this is what Christ meant when he says, no man who has left houses and families and children for my sake, but that they won't also obtain more in this life and in the life to come, eternal life. You've heard that, Matthew chapter 19. Peter says, Lord, we have forsaken all. And Christ said, you're not going to lose. Because in that, that, and that means Peter is releasing things. Because when you forsake, you release. That's part of forgiveness. Does that make some sense, you guys? When you forsake, you release. That's part of forgiveness. You're letting that situation go because at the moment, you know you can't fix it. All right, so there's an inference being drawn out. This will probably be the last one, last question we deal with. If you think it's your job to fix it, then it's bigger than forgiveness. It's bigger than forgiveness. Now this is a construction project at the sociological level for which you are the, 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 the manager. You are now the construction worker. You got to fix this whole thing yourself. If you feel like the only way I'm going to be at peace is if this thing can be corrected, right? But what if it can't be corrected by you? You've already seen that after all these years. So why don't you take the construction hat off and stop owning being the manager and the, and the construction worker thinking you can fix it and let God have that construction project. Let him have that construction project. But to be able to release at that level, you have to believe that your identity is not dependent upon their approval. Did that make some sense? Right. Okay, so you're not listening to me. Let me finish because they can hear me. And you're not quite hearing. And I understand that because you're emotionally attached. So listen carefully to me. When I know that it's bigger than me, I release the whole thing because I'm not obligated to fix it. Though I want forgiveness because the whole talk is forgive me, forgive me, forgive me. I can't forgive you the way you want me to forgive you because what you want me to do is to forget all of the evil you're doing to me. That's not forgiveness at all. Because forgiveness is a bilateral thing at category two. We're not at category two. We're not at category two. So your sisters don't get this because it's easy to tell you to forgive him at the emotional, relational, psychological level because it keeps peace with everybody in the house. You're going to be the sacrificial lamb. Do you understand that? Of course you do. You know, we all we all got the same stuff going on in our families. Our families are crazy. Okay, so first level of afa'imi is to release it. Know what that means? When our sister is operating out of a healthy self-autonomy, a freedom, a kind of independence rooted in God, everybody's going to be scared of Katrina. They're going to all be scared of her because that girl going to be walking in her superpowers and they're going to go, whoa, we can't get to her. All the rest of them are codependent with daddy. They're all codependent with daddy and they're all Christian. If this is not Cinderella, I don't know what is. So Cinderella just need to know if I can't find the other slipper to fix this thing, I'm going to get rid of both slippers. Jesus, give me a pair of sandals and we can keep it rolling. Right? 
That's that's stage one. That's stage one. It's releasing the situation because deep down inside, you actually think that somehow it only gets fixed if you are part of the fixing scenario. You're not. Now, what that would mean is you have to be willing to suffer until you grow into a state of comfortableness with them not being able to control you by their demands. So that's stage one, that's stage one, very important. So like sometimes, like, I don't know, you maybe you have, every time you said, you know, I ain't going over there, I'm chilling. I'm not gonna be the whipping girl this time. You're not gonna jump on me because we just, this is how we are. So I'm staying at home. Now I better go over there. So I, I go on over there, right? You were going to stay at home, but you're going over there. I wasn't going to give him a gift. I better stop at Walmart and get a gift. Go get a gift. And then take it on over there and kind of hope everything is going to be our same thing happens. And you're mad at yourself because you knew this was going to happen. You already just told us that. So it's you're not coming. See, so now watch this. She can go when she grows to be able to go freely without feeling like you're obligated to meet their demands because they have the ability to tear your soul down and make you small because that's what's going on. Tear you down, make you small. Tear you down, make you small. Tear you down, make you small. This is a slavery paradigm. Our families can be that way too, tyrannical enough to operate out of a slavery system without valuing our sister at the level of her autonomy and the Imago Dei in her. We should all be protecting her. So like everybody should be dealing with dad. Everybody should be dealing with dad. Dad, you can't do that. You say you're a Christian. You are the oldest person in the house. You know Noah. You know Methuselah. You should have more wisdom. You see, I'm kind of jabbing because I... I, (laughs) You should be wise enough to know how to be charitable and thankful for a daughter like Katrina. Who you think you are? You can just, and you can't demand forgiveness. If you demand forgiveness, it's not mercy. You can't make somebody forgive you. Are you crazy? I demand you, God, forgive me. Because I said so. No, forgiveness is premised on mercy. All right, that's one. That's one. The first one, it's pretty, now, The reason why I believe in a unilateral forgiveness of letting things go is because I believe in peace. And the first level of peace is in me with God. Because if I'm I'm too weak to walk in my autonomy and my freedom and my agency in the midst of these people who have gotten into my head for so many years, they are forcing me to commit a kind of idolatry. You know this. This is how the enemy always works. This is how the snake got in Eve's head and got her to rebel against her daddy. You guys got that. And so for Katrina, what I'm saying is where she. So what we all do when we are trapped by uh, a um, an illegal relationship with emotional investments way too high. I call it illegal because it's not biblical. God, there's nobody that you and I are supposed to have a relationship with so profoundly abusive at a reciprocal level that it, that it actually removes God from the equation. 
everything that would be in the way of a healthy walk with God has to be ready to go. Everything has to be ready to go. And, and we're not talking about go to hell. We're talking about you can't, you can't enter into my space because you're usurping an authority that you have no right to. Right. So what our sister has to work on is her sense of autonomy and independence in Christ to recognize that the world is not going to collapse because she doesn't cooperate with her dad because it's not in her heart not to ever not co- cooperate with her dad. That's not in her heart. We know that. All right, but she, you, you got to actually demonstrate self-agency by not doing what they expect and watching them fall apart and call you whatever they want to. And you can go, oh, well, I know who I am. I know that I don't hate them. I know I don't have this profound uh, uh, anger and vitriol against them. I know that. The, the, the anger and the pain that I have is a pain of reciprocity. That's a big difference. Did y'all know what I just stated? If you punch me too many times, I'm going to be angry at you. Right. I'm not going to say, oh, I love you. Hit me again. I'm human. Human. After the first step, when you start feeling the pain of the punch, is leave the scene of the crime. You leave the scene of the crime. That's, that's first principle of autonomy and agency because you are not only caring about you, you're caring about you in God. If that makes sense. Nah, dad, nah, I don't want to feel your arrows and your spears this year because it's apparent that you don't see me as your daughter. And I don't want to actually do that to you. So I'm not showing up this year. So you can have some drama with the rest of the people. You can talk bad about me because I'm not there. But all I'm doing this year is saying no more drama. Did that make sense? That's stage one. Now, she'll have to grow into that. That's what I mean by suffering leads to loss leads to growth. Suffering leads to loss leads to growth. It leads to growth because what she will discover is after she goes through all of the mental psychological gymnastics of should I do it? Should I not? Like she going through transformation. And then she settles down and realizes the world doesn't end. All of her sisters go back to normal. They kick it with her. They do life like they always do because her sisters are her sisters. I know them like we all have family. And, and dad will be frustrated, whatever. But he can always be frustrated until he get right with Jesus. And then she's going to have to determine when there's an appropriate enough time after the space has been developed for her healing to say, hey, dad. And it, you can't rush on this. You can't rush on this. You have to have a sense of uh, temperance and control over the situation where when you go to dad, you say, now, dad, I'm not coming here to plead for your forgiveness or nothing for what I did. I'm letting you know I would love to have a relationship with you, but no more this way. You say you're a child of God. I'm a child of God, too. And the Bible tells you and I, we're supposed to be peacemakers. We're supposed to walk in love and love works no 
ill to its neighbor. Romans chapter 13, verse 9. You got that? So, so these is, this is how you establish the grounds of reconciliation. So if he really loved you, he'd be willing to reconcile. But see, what you were going to discover is he probably doesn't love you at that level. So part of the challenge here is when we have a love for someone, that love reflects on us at the deep identity level. And when we discover that we come to an awareness that they don't love us like that, that's a suffering and it's a loss. And often we're not wanting to go through that suffering and loss of something that was an illusion. It didn't even really correspond with reality. This ain't got nothing to do with blood. Blood don't mean nothing in these matters that we're talking about. Blood doesn't mean anything here. Don't y'all know this by now? The, the, the heinous crime committed by human beings against each other has no genetic categories. Brother against brother. That's why your Bible is so clear, Cain and Abel. Right? And so um, what our sister is dealing with is, a, is, a, is an issue as to, like, bringing it up was good. She brought it up. So you guys want to be prayerful for her because it would be great if she could go to this next level of maturity. Right. Be, be, because we've been talking about this for a long time. And what I know from my own family is that people are crazy enough to be angry and bitter and hostile with each other till they breathe their last breath. It's true. They'll breathe their last breath angry, mad, and, and, and for the child of God, uh-uh. Oh. Oh. No. Right? And so what we want to pray for Katrina is her freedom to stand in her autonomy and walk in her authority to do what her, her, to do what her intuition is calling her to do because her intellect predicated upon the, the cycle of dysfunctionality in the relationship is going to override her impulse to do something that simply requires a level of faith to endure the suffering and the loss that would bring her into a growth that would allow her to live under different conditions with her father going forward. Did that make some sense to you guys? Good. This is true for all of us. This is not hating him. This is actually loving him. This is actually loving him, right? That last category of forgiveness, because some of you guys might be in it, or the people watching us might be in it, is the issue of reconciliation. I mean, restoration. So you have released, then you have what is called reconciliation. Reconciliation is coming to the table, talking it through. If the party is sincere. They'll come to the table, talk it through. It does not mean that the relationship is going to be restored. It just means we got clarity on what went down. Every relationship does not have to be restored. We're just clearing out the problem so both parties can live free. Doesn't get, we, see, the planet is small. Our planet is small now. Do you guys know that? Like, 
You can't be thinking and you can try, but not today. You can think that there's a person that you don't want to ever see again. If I have my druthers, I don't want to ever see them again. So I'm moving to Tahiti. I'm moving to the Amazon. I'm moving to the far regions of the North Pole. And lo and behold, they own a vacation and you run across them there. Like, they, like, like Job said, the very thing I feared came upon me. So like running has to be strategic. It cannot be cowardice. The planet's too small. That's the reason why God made it so small. Some things you just have to deal with. Now, if you're a multi-trillionaire, you can holler at Elon and you can get your rocket ship and go to Mars. Y'all understand what I'm getting at? Right. In our minds, we distort meanings to make them conveniently fit the narrative at hand the narrative at hand is a self-imposed bias. We impose the bias because of the dysfunctionality of the relationship. And so we frame things and define things that really are self-defeating. So if we create a definition of forgiveness that's self-defeating, then really what we are doing is being permissive and not forgiving. Does that make some sense? And this is where truth has to be on our part, coveted because truth is what sets you free. So whatever kind of uh, interpretation you put on a thing, if it's not truth, you have no guarantee of freedom. Does that make some sense? Right, if, it, if we define it right, according to God, if we get the context right, if we get the definition right, if we get the truth orientation in that situation right, if we can get a hold to the truth, then we can know even if it has pain, even if it has loss, it's going to lead to freedom because truth is freedom. See what I'm getting at? Right. You, 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 this is exactly what I wanted to make sure we got. Patient was free. He's totally free. So all of those gifts and all that stuff that came in that big old bag, you guys probably were thinking of them in terms of inanimate objects. A lot of them were personal relationships. A lot of those gifts were um, business endeavors. A lot of those uh, things in that bag were complex scenarios in the which because they have the promise of material blessing, they also come with the curse of relational conflict, contractual uh, deception. Did that make some sense? Did y'all get what I just stated? Right? Because when the devil came to Jesus, he had a contract, didn't he? You don't get all this, Jesus, until you sign the contract. And a lot of times what we're dealing with are people who want us signing contracts. All right, join me in prayer. Pray for my, well, okay, no, no, no. We got a brother trying to get out the water. Um, so I have a continuation of my sister's question. Just how do you forgive out of a place of pain um, in truth? Kind of like with AJ's question where it's like you can say you're a sinner, you can say you forgive. But to truly forgive, how? Like, I mean. Y'all got a few minutes? Hopefully not, because the heart of it, 
He caught the essence of it with Katrina. So, see, this is called honesty right here. This is why an honest person doesn't go to hell, because we work it out. When people don't want to work it out, they don't want to be honest. When, you, when you're honest, you bring it to the light. And the multitude of counselors, their safety. You get to deconstruct a thing. And then you, when you do it in the community of light bearers, we all can bear record. This is court right now. This is a heavenly courtroom. This is a heavenly council room. Does that make sense? Right. And so now my brother is saying, I, I, want, I, I want to talk about side B of case one. She dealt with A, I want to deal with B. And it has to do with fundamentally the same thing, but the struggle for being able to recognize that the attempt to forgive is authentic and real. Right. So for him, so um, Duke would be kind of on the other side of the equation because for Katrina, her dad is in the state of non-forgiveness, deeply trapped by non-forgiveness. That's why he's cussing and fussing the way he does. He doesn't walk in the forgiveness of God's grace because the forgiveness of God's grace is reciprocal. Right. Be ye holy for I am holy. If God is loved, then we operate in love. If God forgave me, then I forgive others. Now, this is going to be a great scenario for Katrina. I'm getting back to, uh, to Duke in a second. A great scenario for Katrina because Katrina is going to actually position herself for being healthy this year. And her dad's going to want to try to condemn her for that. Now, he's going to be guilty because if we brought him to the floor of counsel with a multitude of witnesses, we would say, Dad, you're wrong. But out of his pride, he wouldn't want to capitulate. So he's stuck in unforgiveness, too, because he's walking in the delusion of selfishness. He's a narcissist. Now, granted, he got pain. That's what alcoholism and drugs do when you got pain. I get that. I totally get that. But you still got to be honest about it. Does that make some sense? You still got to be honest about why you are trying to medicate your pain. And apparently it's not working because you, you, you having fits with your daughter. You can't drink your way out of some pain. We all, some of us know this. Don't we know this? You can't drink your way out of all pain. Um, with Duke, what he's simply trying to do is find out where the bottom is in his insecurity. Right. He's trying to find out where the bottom is in this insecurity. When you and I can't walk in forgiveness, it's because we are radically insecure. That insecurity is rooted in a long pattern of something that went down that shaped him and put him in a position of a couple, two or three things. Massively guarded against hurt so that hurt is not able to move him in a position of growth and gain. Did that make some sense? Like we'll super guard ourselves. And then when something get in, we're fit to be tied because we hurt. And so he's interpreting the forgiveness in consequence of the pain of the hurt that's attached to decades of other painful things. So when we, when we so now forgiveness is hostage to my pain. 
So, So I'm defining forgiveness in terms of how I feel versus the practical execution of it for the good of the situation. So this one is also subtly important to overcome. Don't let forgiveness be defined by your feelings. Let forgiveness be defined by your actions first. So in overcoming psychological, emotional, neurophysiological traumas, anything by which we have to overcome starts with an understanding that leads to a strategy that's called proxies. You got to practice your way out of attitudes and dispositions that have you trapped. You practice your way out of it. You practice your way out of it. And if I can't practice my way out of it, then I know I'm really trapped. I don't have to wait until I feel like loving you to love you. Because love is not merely a feeling. I dare any one of you to show me how you feel God's love. God's love is profoundly propositional, profoundly executional, exhibitional, existential. God's love for you does not depend upon how you feel how much God loves you. Does that make some sense? Sure. Because if God's love is validated by your feeling, what about the day you stop feeling like God loves you? I don't feel like you love me no more, Lord. Didn't stop him from coming 2,000 years ago and dying on the cross for all your sins, past, present, and future. Right? Uh, I don't feel like, see, there's a bunch of people walking on the planet whose identity is wrapped up in their feelings and not in their understanding who can't benefit from the propositional truth claims of the gospel for something that took place 2000 years ago that sets them for eternity without feelings. And then you got these crazy churches that want to give you a feel good God. Am I making some sense? Oh, Oh, I feel God now. Okay. I'm fine. What about next week when you don't feel him? Did he take off? Did he disappear? Did he shriek? Did you put him in the refrigerator? Where's God at? See? Am I making some sense? Right, stay with me now. So this is extremely important. So, and, and I love God. You know what God came and told me to do? Love him. That's what he came and told me to do. I have no idea how that feels. I know what that means in practice. You know what that is? Just do what I say. Right? If you love me, keep my commandments. So we, me and God didn't sit around and trade emotional love cards. Now I know he loves me profoundly. There's all the stuff I've been through. I'm still here today. I could be dead for so many reasons. So I know he loves me. Providence tells me that. And then I know he loves me because his promises, they unpeel to become reality a lot. That's how you know somebody loves you, because they act in a way in accord with what they say. And it shows up as an expression. You, you understand what I'm saying? They act in a way in accord with what they say, and it shows up in expression. Please understand, you're not loving somebody if you're saying something and doing something else. Just let's just keep that straight. 
That's it. Now, I know we love saying we love. Oh, I love you. 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 Let the smoke clear and let's just see how we acted. See what I'm getting at? Fine with all of the loves. I'm fine. I, I do that now. I'm getting old. So I just I just give all kind of people love bombs everywhere. I love you. I love you. I love you. But I'm making sure for me, I'm making sure for me that I'm acting in a way consistent with that statement. Because I didn't have people love me and stick a big old 12 inch knife in my back and then stick it in and twist it and then rip me up from the backside and hope that I didn't live. Okay, he did that. That brother didn't love me. Right. Uh, And I'm using the metaphor because it wasn't about an actual attack. It was a behavior, a behavior that set me up. And if it wasn't for God coming in and rescuing me, I'd be taken out just like they wanted me to be taken out. And so this is how we understand love. So what our brother is struggling with, we're going to definitely get out here in a few minutes, is correlating the act of forgiveness with the feeling of pain that he has at the moment of a perceived offense that goes so deep in him that it traps him at levels of mental and psychological darkness. Some of y'all know what I'm talking about. And see, can I tell you, the lights are on. He's walking in the light. Because there are a whole lot of people that wouldn't even want to have this conversation. There are a whole lot of people, I don't go through that. You're lying. You do go through it. We all go through it. We don't all go through it at the same measure. We don't all go through it to the same extent, the same frequency. But every now and then, And this is the reason why Jesus is our model. And he allowed Judas Iscariot, who had a big old knife, he stuck in our master's back. He allowed Judas to be that kind of person in the community so that Jesus could be a faithful high priest, able to sympathize with us in all points. See, he knows that. Now, the other thing that I need to say with this, if it can help you guys, is that Uh, A lot of times when we're wounded from the past, we unjustly transfer the weight of that wound to people in the present. And when we're honest, that bothers us. (laughs) Because we really know this is not about them. But I don't know how to disassociate that with this at the moment because it feels the same. Right? It feels the same. So what we're going to be praying for Duke is his ability to transcend those internal impulses that reach back psychologically and without propositional clarity into the emotional event, the emotional event that would lock him up to the attitude and anger and response in the present against someone for whom they're perceived. I'm using the word perceived offense. There's a lot of times it's not even real. It's not even real, not even real, but he's still feeling it. What's real is to feel it, not the fact of the offense. 
if truth be told, a minute earlier, he was way worse than the person now that he's mad at. The truth for all of us, particularly when we're trapped by this kind of pathology that goes way back. Am I making some sense? He's really fighting against himself. So the sooner he practices releasing other people, he'll be able to enjoy his own release, which he's not quite, quite able to do. And because he's not able to do it, he's hiding behind self-righteousness. If you don't forgive right away, you're self-righteous. Now, please listen. Self-righteousness is not the unpardonable sin, but it's not God's righteousness. And it doesn't afford you the grace to act like God when you're self-righteous. This is why I am opposing the biggest optic in the world right now, a group of folks who call themselves Zionist, when Zionism is the epitome of the triumph of Christ's work at Calvary to release all men from their sin by his sacrifice on the cross. They didn't got rid of Jesus completely. And they're just operating out of power. Did y'all hear what I just stated? And I'm not on the side of power. I'm on the side of principle. And that, that principle is rooted in a person. His name is Jesus. And everybody that gets tripped up in this matrix of power over principle is going to capitulate to power. And that would mean that you're a slave. This is the beauty of Christ. This is the beauty of Christ. He knew the only way you overcome evil is with good. You don't come overcome evil by doing more evil. That's why I'm not deceived about all this pseudo-Zionism and pseudo-triumph and pseudo-wars and pseudo-power. That's not the fight that we're called to fight. All they're doing over there is making more enemies. They're birthing children that's ready to die and destroy anything that looks like their enemy. Am I making some sense? That's not, that's not liberty. That's bondage. And the same with us. Render not evil for evil, but good. And remember, vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. So a lot of times what God is saying to us when he says, uh, let it go, let it go, is because he plans on dealing with that himself. Really? I'm going to tell you, I'm done here. I'm going to tell you, I've, I've done that in my, in my lifetime you know, because growing up in the hood is really sketchy. People don't know. Like, you know, there are many scenarios in where in which you could get hurt and die in the hood because mis, uh, conflicts escalate so quick in the hood. They go from, you know, talking to cussing to knives and guns in, in just seconds and then knives and guns against family in seconds in the hood. OK, so once it's out of control, you only you're 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 really at the hand of God's mercy. Okay, so many scenarios like that I've been through from my childhood where the impulse is to get them back. Okay, and uh, 
I mean, I'm so glad God arrested me because it was just a pattern with all my friends and all my boys. That's what we did. I'm so glad he arrested. He rescued me at a young age because I was strapped to bear because that's all you know. That's what you get taught. Get them before they get you. And God got me before I got them. Right. And, and, and the clarity, the clarity of forgive them. So I'm tying this in because we don't want to forgive when we're part of the tribal jungle. We don't want to forgive because that's weakness. We're stupid enough to be ready to go to jail to get at somebody over something that could have been an easy misunderstanding. Because we're walking in darkness. And if God doesn't intervene, rescue you and put you in jail like he did me, say, son, sit down for a minute. You need to think this through. Now, you already warned Mr. Mr. John Henry told you, you ain't got but three choices here. You guys have heard me tell the story. Got three choices, son. You can get off this bench and stop selling that dope and carrying that pistol and worrying about somebody robbing you and shooting you. Or you can stay up here and end up dead, end up on drugs, or end up in prison. He said, ain't but three choices in this game. He was a dope fan. I was one of the only older men when I was in the game that loved me enough to tell me the truth. It was 12 o'clock at night, walked up to me and said, Jess, I know you, I know your dad. You're going the wrong way. Following my dad. And but three things going to happen to you, son. He said, you can't beat a thinking man. He said, think your way out of it, son. And that's what the gospel is about. Think your way out. Does that make some sense? Think your way out. Seek Christ. Seek the gospel. Walk in the power of grace to walk away from vengeance. Walk away from the stupid counsel. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, life for life. That's dumb. All my boys gone. All my boys are gone. Do you understand that? All of them are gone. They're all gone. And so I'm like, see, so I live every day in a, I wake up every day pinching myself. Going, Whoa, the Lord spared me. Spared me. And he taught me long ago to be counterintuitively forgiving at the unilateral level. Let it go, Jess, let it go. Keep it moving. Let it go. Keep it moving. You got to watch your back. I still watch my back. I'm just letting you know. But let it go because I still live in the territory. But let it go. And when you let it go, guess what you got to do? You got to trust God now. You got to trust God because, you know, you can let it go and then later on go back and pick it back up. Am I talking to somebody in the house? Father, help us now as we go our way to um, receive the counsel. It may be transformative in our life. Help us to be patient. So, indeed, to possess our souls. We know this is all a function of your grace. We're going to give you glory for it. We thank you for the uh, gift of discipleship, to be able to sit and learn, and to mutually exhort one another, um, even in just a mere affirmation 
of our honest conversations about our struggles. We know this is what is meant in 1 John chapter 1, 5, when you said, uh, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. We see that, we know that, we experience that now. We're asking for power now, power for all of us to do a better job today and tomorrow in the area of releasing for the possibility of reconciliation or restoration. One of the three, O oh Lord, so we can keep walking in the freedom for which you have set us free in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.